0: everybody, and I'd like to welcome you to today's presentation on increasing awareness of human trafficking. If you didn't know, today is July 30th, which is the United Nations World Day Against Trafficking in Persons. That's a really... Big mouthful. What we're really going to talk about today is just a high-level overview of so we can understand more about human trafficking and maybe a little bit about what we can do to identify and potentially start helping people who are survivors of human trafficking. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We're really going to look at the prevalence of human trafficking. Talk about what it is, how big of a deal it is, and the biopsychosocial needs of survivors and some of the barriers to care. I'm going to start out with some basic facts, you know, as always... These are just for information purposes only. You're not going to be tested um, in, in the class on exact numbers about anything, but I want you to get an idea about the scope of what's going on. Human trafficking is when people are recruited or harbored by threat or force to be exploited for commercial sex or labor. A lot of people, when we think of human trafficking, we think of sex trafficking, but that is not the only form of human trafficking. A victim does not need to be transported anywhere in order to fall under the definition of human trafficking. So if you have somebody in your community who is uh, using threat or force to exploit people uh, for commercial sex or labor, then, you know, Human trafficking exists. So the word trafficking really means that there's sort of a um, financial relationship uh, involved in this whole thing. 9.5 billion is generated in annual revenue from all trafficking activities. And this was a statistic from 2005. It has done nothing but grow since 2005, which is 15 years ago. So can you imagine what the number is now? Human trafficking wasn't illegal until 2000. Wow, that's, that shocked me when I found that out. Uh, George W. Bush signed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000. The United States, Mexico, and the Philippines are ranked as some of the worst places for human trafficking in 2018. And more than 300,000 young people in the U.S. alone are considered at risk of sexual exploitation in any given year. Unfortunately... And you may not have thought about this, but, you know, you'll understand a little bit more as we go through. COVID-19 has amplified trafficking dangers. Loss of jobs, growing poverty, school closures, and a rise in online interactions increase vulnerabilities. Human traffickers fill a need. And we're going to talk a lot about that, but you have a lot of people who are in, um, problematic situations who are at risk because of, you know, what's going on in their own home or maybe even not having a home that makes them more susceptible to human traffickers. We do need to be aware. We also want to remember that not only is human trafficking something that happens for sex or labor, but it can also happen and it also does happen to men and women, girls and boys and, um... It's important to recognize that, you know, it, it's something that, that's ongoing and, and adults and children. 30 to 88% of survivors, I know that's a broad range, but our stats on human trafficking, especially within the U.S., are really not great. Um, not saying that they're, they're bad. They probably are very bad. But our statistical record keeping just leaves a lot to be desired. Anyhow. 30 to 88% of survivors interact with healthcare providers while they are being trafficked. All right? Now, that can mean behavioral health. That can mean physical health. A lot of times it's emergency room um, visits or maybe even going to the doctor. But a lot of times, you know, think about the cost benefit for the trafficker. A lot of times the survivor is not taken to the doctor for annual care for those sorts of things. So when are we going to see these people? We are going to see people who are being trafficked when they are not able to bring money into the trafficker, Um, when they're... Um, value to the trafficker is dropping, then they're going to be taken to the ER or taken to the doctor in order to get fixed up so they can start um, earning again. Juvenile survivors may present with traffickers or associates of traffickers who may be family members. That's important to recognize that family members can be traffickers um, and they can also be associates of traffickers. Um, So a lot of times juvenile survivors present with their traffickers when a health or mental health need impacts their ability to work or earn. So you may be thinking, you know, how can family members be involved? Well, let's just take the example of a family who has immigrated here from another country. Their visa in this country is tied to their employment and the employer, um, is, you know, essentially the trafficker, their child gets sick, um, and you know, goes to the doctor and you know, because their child is sick, they are leaving work. They're not able to be as productive. So you can see how the children of adults that are being trafficked can also, um, you know, be involved in this whole thing. It's important to recognize that 75% of all trafficking is for labor. Not sex. Now, there is a whole bunch of sex trafficking. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. But what I am pointing out is a lot of times we grossly overlook the fact uh, of human trafficking for labor. Among survivors from the Americas, 70% of human traffickers or human traffic survivors are female. Thailand and India both recorded over 90% of survivors to be men which is kind of interesting. Many victims of human trafficking endure extensive physical violence, often including prior abuse and victimization and adverse childhood experiences. So when we're identifying uh, people who are survivors of human trafficking, we want to recognize that the human trafficking may not be the beginning of their trauma. It may just be additional trauma because they had, uh, prior abuse, victimization, or adverse childhood experiences that may put them at risk for victimization. Cultural beliefs may influence victims attempt, uh, victim, sorry. Cultural beliefs may influence victims to accept violence or defer to the trafficker. There are some, um, cultures in which the survivor, Maybe deferring to head of household who is being controlled by a trafficker. You know, so we, we do need to consider the dynamics. 71% of labor trafficking victim, victims entered the U.S. legally, legally. They got here, they were on a work visa, um, so 71% of them got here legally. In the U.S. in 2015, 40% of sex trafficking victims were Native American. Now, that broke my heart. Um, You know, all of this broke my heart when I was doing it. But we do want to recognize that there are certain populations that may be more at risk. Migrant farm workers can become trafficking victims because their legal status in the U.S. is often tied to their employment. So if they cause problems, if they don't agree to work for poultry wages or no wages at all, then they risk being sent back to their country of origin. So... Therein, you've got this coercive financial sort of relationship. In 2018, under President Trump, the U.S. Department of Justice funded 45 victim service providers with $31 million. Now, clearly that's not enough to get rid of this issue, but that was double from what it was the year prior to that. So we are making a little bit of headway. Non-U.S. citizen survivors often qualify for what's called T visas, if they've come to the U.S. because of trafficking and are cooperative with reasonable requests from authorities. Now, a lot of people want to believe that the T visa is very, very difficult to get because of that. Uh, clause at the end that says they have to be cooperative with reasonable requests from legal authorities. What I want you to hone in on, and this is super important, there are exceptions. The exceptions are if the person is under 18, they don't have to cooperate. They are able to get a T visa um, according to, and when if you click on this little hyperlink for or, it'll take you to the uh, website that explains how they can get a T visa, but if they're under 18, that doesn't uh, apply. If they have suffered psychological or physical trauma and are unable to cooperate with law enforcement because of that trauma. Now, let's think about how many trafficking survivors have not experienced psychological or physical trauma, which may preclude them from cooperating. You know, so I think there's a really large portion of people out there who are survivors of trafficking, who are able to get a T visa, um, that, you know, even without providing, quote, reason, cooperating with reasonable requests from legal authorities. It's important to get with your local immigration attorney, um, or agency that helps with these sorts of things in order to get legal consultation in your area. But I really, really Feel strongly about making sure that you're aware that there are exceptions. So if it is too traumatic for somebody to cooperate, if they are too terrified, or if they're under 18, um, those are exceptions to that cooperation clause. Let's talk real briefly about the business of human trafficking, just to kind of understand what it's all about. First, the perpetrator identifies the victim, and victims typically are troubled in some way, and in order for them to be malleable, um, the perpetrator is able to fulfill a need of some sort. So risk factors, trouble at home, and I want you to remember, we're talking about adults and children, so if there's domestic violence, if there's poverty, um, there's a lot of things that could be happening. Trouble at home, low socioeconomic status, depression, anxiety, addiction, school failure, unemployment, truant behavior, all of these things set people up to be um, susceptible to a person who says, I can help you solve your problem. I can, I can kind of be a savior, if you will. So the next step, once they identify somebody that's at risk, somebody that can be Manipulated it a little bit easier. There are six steps to the grooming process. They target the victim. They gain the victim's trust. You know, it's not an immediate, you know, okay, you know, join my band and I'll take care of you and yada, yada. There is a, it's a process and it's actually a pretty long process. So they gain the person's trust. It could be, you know, meeting up and chatting or a lot of times, especially under COVID, it's chatting online. While they're targeting the victim, gaining their trust, they're identifying the needs that they can fill. The more needs they can fill for a person, the more malleable or the more manipulatable um, that person is. So think about Maslow's hierarchy. Do they need housing? Do they need a safe place to be? Do they need food? Do they need love? Do they need comfort? Um. Any of those needs the person can fill, do they need self-esteem if they don't feel good about themselves and this, uh, trafficker can really pump up their self-esteem and make them feel loved and make them feel worthy, then guess what? They're starting to develop that psychological attachment. Once the person starts filling that need and saying, oh, I've got all these things, let me help you, then they're going to start isolating the victim from their friends, from their family, encouraging the victim to spend less time with their friends and family, and maybe even, you know, discouraging and saying, you know, that person's not, I don't want you hanging out with that person, or I want you to come live with me, whatever the case may be, there's a process. Now in sexual trafficking becomes the sexualizing the relationship. There is a place in here in which the person becomes more vulnerable because they have so much invested. They have become so vulnerable to this person that they are terrified of leaving, which comes to the maintaining control. During and especially after the grooming process, Stockholm syndrome gains roots in the emotional relationship between the victim and the captor. We have to, as as humans, we have to make sense of how things are happening, why we're accepting certain behaviors. And one of the proposed theories is Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome is considered a complex reaction to a frightening situation. Three factors are necessary for Stockholm syndrome. The crisis situation, this initial situation in which the person is uh, isolated and starts to become fearful, uh, lasts several days or longer, and often includes torture, rapes, beatings, or other methods of control before the victim can be trusted to go out into the community, do what they're supposed to do, and come back, before the victim can be trusted to not run away. During this period. The perpetrator may use intimidation and it can be, you know, threats of harming someone's children. It can be threats of harming the person. It can be threats of sending them back to their country of origin if they are, have been transported somewhere. There can be emotional, physical, sexual, and financial abuse. Just like we see in domestically violent relationships, the perpetrator in this case, is going to make sure that the victim or the survivor, however you want to put it, at this point they're a victim, is emotionally dependent on them, is beaten down, feels like they are unworthy of love and they should be grateful that this person is taking care of them. Make sure that they are fearful of authorities. Make sure that they're fearful of other things. They implant ideas that in, in the heads of the victims that make them fearful of everybody else. And the only person they can trust is their captor. There may be physical abuse or sexual and financially the perpetrator often controls all of the money. The, the person is maybe given a little bit of an allowance, maybe, maybe not. Um, and the, uh, a lot of their personal documents, like their social security card and their birth certificate and other stuff like that, the perpetrator will also control. So that person has no documents and is has would have difficulty establishing themselves if they left. Isolation, we already talked about. There can also be gaslighting, which goes along sort of with that emotional abuse, making the person believe that, you know, they might be crazy for what they're believing. If the person starts to say, you know, this isn't right that you are controlling my finances, that you're beating me, that you're doing whatever. And the perpetrator will very often turn it around. So the victim feels ultimately ends up feeling like they deserved what they're getting. The perpetrator will also deny that they're doing anything wrong and they'll minimize what they're doing. They'll show. The person, you know, you should be grateful for everything that I'm doing for you. And they may blame the victim for their own lot in life. The captor stays in personal contact to maintain the trauma bond. It's really important to maintain that emotional connection with the uh, victims in order to maintain control. And part of that is psychological, but part of that is also um, neurochemical. You know, when they see that person, there is a certain set of emotions. There's a certain set of hormones that are secreted. Some of it may be terror, but some of it may be relief too, because at this point, they may be afraid that they can't survive without the captor. And the third factor is the captor has to show some kind of kindness. Yes, there is the initial crisis situation in which the captor is... Horrific to the person, um, but the eventually it moves to where the captor is caretaking for the person. When this happens, I mean, think about what kinds of what that must do to your psyche to have somebody that is abusive and you know potentially torturing you. Then all of a sudden they're showing you kindness, trying to rectify that in your mind has got to be exceptionally confusing. Which is why you know some people you know start to forget or minimize what happened before, or they uh, try to rationalize that they deserved it somehow because now this person is providing them love in some way. Marketing is the next step. So identifying the victim, making sure that the victim is not going to leave, and then marketing the victim. The price for the person is set based on the quality of their goods, how old they are, Maybe their appearance and the market demand. If we're talking labor, you know, um, and and even sex, the younger victims are probably going to be seen as more valuable because they can do more work, because they aren't going to tire as easily as maybe a 60-year-old person would. And the demand in the market, what... Are people wanting in whatever area that is? At this stage, survivors present with major depressive, dissociative, and addictive disorders. So, If you start seeing those issues, you know, and you're working with somebody who you suspect may be involved in human trafficking, you know, encouraging them to develop skills of mindfulness, grounding, relaxation, to help them start dealing with the presenting symptoms. One of the huge challenges is because of the uh, Stockholm Syndrome or whatever you want to call it, a lot of survivors don't recognize or don't see that they're being abused. They see love. They're afraid to be without this person. So they may not come to treatment voluntarily. They may leave treatment. They may not see it as a problem that needs to be addressed, and that is something that really stymies the medical as well as the psychological communities. We have, from what I could find, you know, and I did a lot of research in terms of helping people who have been trafficked um, emerge from that situation, unless they are voluntarily saying, I want to leave, I want out. But somebody who's involuntarily taken out of the trafficking situation, um, the treatments, or approaches that are available to help that person are really quite limited. And we'll talk about that in, in barriers right now, uh, once we get down there. Now, once somebody is marketed, then they're sold. Perpetrators often target large events, especially when we're talking about sex trafficking, such as the Super Bowl or national conventions, to take advantage of the crowds and high demand for paid sexual services. Now, if you're talking about labor... Then you're going to look at places that have a high demand for cheap labor, agricultural communities, uh, places where there are huge factories that might want cheap, illegal labor. Red flags that we need to look for. If the person that you're working with, remember, it's not just a child, claims they are just visiting and they're unable to clarify where they're staying at. You know, they they don't remember the address anything. They don't, and they can't identify landmarks or it's clear that they're not sure where they're at. The, they may have a lack of knowledge of their whereabouts. A lot of times they are transported in vehicles without windows or they're transported in the dead of night. So they're not sure where they are. They haven't seen street signs. They don't know that if they're in um, Las Vegas or Los Angeles, they may have a loss of a sense of time because they're kept on whatever schedule that the perpetrator wants to keep them on. They often have numerous inconsistencies in their story. And this is, you know, pretty common when somebody is in an abusive relationship of sorts. They are they may try to make excuses for what's going on, but those inconsistencies start, you know, raising red flags for you. They often have few or no personal possessions. They will come in, they won't have, you know, a wallet on them. They may not or a purse or or something. Think about the kids that come into your treatment center or the adults that come into your treatment center, a lot of times they come in and they've got something, you know, they've got a wallet that they may not be rich, but they have something. Um, If the person is not in control of their own money, their financial records or their bank account or their own identified identification documents, like their ID or a passport, that can be a red flag. If somebody else is the one filling out their, um demographic paperwork and somebody else is involved in handing over all the documents. Now, obviously, if you're working with a child who's eight years old, they're probably not going to have control of their social security card and stuff. So we want to use common sense here. But if it's a 16 year old, for example, uh, you know, you want to think what would this person normally be controlling of their own? They're not allowed to speak for themselves or they may not be able to speak for themselves they're fearful anxious depressed submissive tense or extremely nervous and hyper vigilant um, you know It's not uncommon for people to have any or all of these feelings, especially when they're in a mental health clinic, um, because they're not sure what's going on. And, you know, some people are afraid that they're going to get involuntarily committed. You know, there are a lot of reasons we don't want to assume, but if somebody seems unusually fearful, or anxious, we want to figure out why. It may be trafficking, it may be something else, but we want to know why. If they avoid eye contact or have poor physical health or signs of abuse, these are other things that we want to be aware of. Um, Avoiding eye contact, as, as we talked about a lot over the past couple of weeks, can be culturally prescribed. We don't want to make assumptions, but We do want to be aware if somebody seems extremely averse to making eye contact in a way that communicates that they may feel extreme shame, then, you know, that's one of those red flags. None of these in and of themselves necessarily mean the person is a victim of human trafficking, but we do want to start looking for some of these red flags because, you know, we're missing A huge proportion of people who are being trafficked because we're not looking for these things. Assessment. Unfortunately, family-originated trafficking is common in the U.S. So whenever controlling dynamics are suspected and the person is accompanied by somebody else, including family members, if appropriate... Had them wait elsewhere. Now there's a fine line here because culturally, sometimes it is more appropriate to allow the family to be there um, in in the room. But we need to walk this fine line. If we feel that the person may be in in jeopardy, in danger, in some way by their family, how do we get them to a place where they feel safe to? Tell us that there's a problem. We need to inform survivors that we are available to help and our office is a safe space. They may not be ready to go there, so to speak, and that's okay. But we need to start putting out that message and letting them know that they are in a safe place. We want to assess people's literacy, their perception of the issue. Do they think they're being abused or taken advantage of? Their relationship to the alleged trafficker. Is it a blood relative? Is it their primary caregiver? Is it somebody that they met on, you know, Backpage or Craigslist or something? What does the survivor hope for out of treatment? You know, they may not want to be depressed anymore, but they may also not see the relationship with their trafficker as a problem. So we need to figure out what is it that they're hoping is gonna happen? What are their current biopsychosocial needs? We need to help them figure out how they can meet their needs on their own. You know, we wanna take that power, if you will, away from the trafficker. If the survivor feels like if they leave, they won't have any money, they won't have any job skills, they won't have a home, they'll be homeless, you know, they won't be able to feed themselves. Well, then they're going to feel trapped in that situation. So we need to identify the needs that they potentially have and help them find resources other than the trafficker to meet those needs. We also want to, and this seems counterintuitive, but it is very important to reinforce that the client can refuse services. The survivor, the client, whatever you want to call them has been in a situation for an undetermined period of time in which they've had no voice, in which they've had no power. We don't want to subsume that role and start taking their voice and taking their power from them. We need to create a safe space and part of safety is empowerment. We wanna let them know that, you know, they are in control of the situation. Physical symptoms that we wanna look for, pain, fatigue, panic, sleep disruption. This is pretty common in people who've been traumatized. Uh, Trauma and mood symptoms that to pay attention to include dissociation, flashbacks, agitation, and depression. Another thing that you'll want to look for and that's really common in people who are being trafficked is non-suicidal self-injury. And so look for any cutting, any picking that that you might notice that may indicate that the person is trying to cope by any means necessary. And substance misuse is also very, very common to try to numb or escape from the situation barriers to care there are a lot of them unfortunately and you know I could make seven slides with barriers to care but here are some of the most problematic issues the public and families unwillingness to view the victims as victims rather than willing participants a lot of times you hear people say well they don't leave they don't run away why don't they go you know to the to law enforcement why don't they go to a counselor why don't they tell somebody Well, for the reasons I just identified, they have been brainwashed to believe that if they leave, they're going to die. I mean, that's the short version of it. Whether it's they're going to die because the perpetrator will come after them and kill them, or that they are unlovable and will be unable to meet their basic needs on their very own, so they should be grateful to the perpetrator. There are a lot of reasons that the participant may go back to that person, um, go back to that situation, even though, you know, from an objective standpoint, people who are outside of that immediate dyad can often see that it is a very dysfunctional situation. We need to dispel the myth that people are happy in their current situation and they're staying willing. You know, we want to look at what's causing them to stay in that situation. Another barrier is from me- the medical community, law enforcement, and and behavioral health. When pe- when those professionals see survivors' behaviors as resistant, well, this person is not wanting to do the work they need to do to get better, to leave the situation, so they must be resistant. Well, let's look at it. N- number one, do they even have the energy to be able to focus on that? Where's their HPA axis? Where's their health? Number two, we, we know behavior is a form of communication. And if they are not doing what we ask them to do, it could be because they're afraid that they don't have the skills or tools to make it happen. It could be because the threat of leaving that situation is far greater than the threat of staying in that situation. We need to ask ourselves, what is this person's behavior telling us? Why is it that going back to that situation is more rewarding or is safer than leaving, and that's going to differ for every situation, but it is important that we look at the, the survivor's behavior as meaningful. The victim may have an emotional attachment to the perpetrator, which because of Stockholm syndrome, because of grooming, because that perpetrator may have fill the need that they had that, you know, nobody else was filling, the victim may feel emotionally and psychologically indebted to that person. They may think they love them in a certain way and they may not want to forego or give up whatever it is that that person was contributing especially on the emotional level. Uh, so that's really important that we recognize the, there is a relationship. There is a strong emotional connection between the perpetrator and the victim, even if it's an unhealthy one. The victim's issues that created the initial vulnerability and, uh, may keep them from leaving. You know, if they initially got into this situation, um, when they were addicted to something or when they were homeless, um. You know, if they were homeless to begin with, they may not know what they're going to have when they when they get out. If they were addicted and their trafficker is providing them drugs, you know, fulfilling that need, they may be afraid that if they leave that, then they won't be able to access it. And they the reason they started their addiction in the first place, they may not be able to cope with life on life's terms. So that's terrifying. And especially for juveniles there's a potential that they may have to go back into a dysfunctional home situation. You know, they escaped, they feel like they escaped from that, you know, still exists. So if they leave their perpetrator who's been protecting them, shielding them from, you know, maybe an emotionally abusive or physically abusive home life, if they leave that and they're still a juvenile, they may end up being put back in that caregiver's placement, um, custody. And that can be a reason that especially a juvenile may not want to go. They may feel like they have the lack of they a lack of skills and resources for independence. And sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. If somebody has been trafficked here from another country, they may not speak English. They may not have ever had the opportunities to learn how to function um, in American culture. You know how to create a bank account. How to um, get a job how to ride public transportation there's a lot of stuff that we take for granted so that may be terrifying it may just be too overwhelming to that person and they're just like i I can't do it the victim as i said earlier may not identify the relationship as abusive false beliefs implanted during the grooming process will make often make the victims very suspicious of the medical community of the mental health community of anybody outside of the perpetrator there's Because of all of this, it takes a significant amount of time to develop trust. You're not going to develop rapport in 30 minutes. You're probably not going to develop rapport in 30 days. It takes time of interacting with that person, doing case management, um, trying to help them access the resources, or at least become aware of the resources that they may need. But during that time, where are they staying? You know, if they are terrified of leaving their abuser and you're trying to help them see that there's a way out, where are they staying during this time? There are virtually no transitional placements where this person can go and, you know, decide if they want to leave. You know, once they leave the perpetrator, that creates a lot of danger for them in the first place, whether it's danger of being deported or danger of physical harm. Um, But, you know, it's important to recognize that once they make that move, once they start asserting power in that relationship, stuff's going to hit the fan and that can be very terrifying for them. So they, they almost need to have a ready-made place to step into. It's going to take time to develop that, that trust and that rapport. They may also have fears that connections with law enforcement or service providers can compromise their physical safety. So even talking to you, even if they're not leaving, even if they're going back to their perpetrator after every appointment, even connecting with you may be seen as a betrayal by the perpetrator and put them in danger of having the beatings, having the torture amped up again in order to ensure dependence. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, what kind of treatment is available, what can we do, yada, yada. Um, And some people have looked towards theories that emerged out of helping people with cults, for example. Um, One of those theories is called deprogramming. We've pretty much gotten away from that. Um, Now there is an approach that is referred to as exit counseling, and one of the crucial or the most crucial thing in exit counseling is making sure that survivors know that they have the ability to leave at any time. One of the crucial aspects of exit counseling is empowerment. The focus is not on recovery as we define it. The focus in exit counseling is on building rapport and not worrying about persuading the, the client or the survivor that the perpetrator is a negative in, you know, think about if Somebody that you've known, you know, not not necessarily a trafficking situation, but somebody that you've known that's been in, a, in an abusive relationship, how much good did it do to try to sit there and convince them, try to get them to see how unhealthy and dysfunctional the relationship was? Most of the time they were not willing or able to see that. So you were putting putting a wall between the two of you because you weren't walking in their shoes. And that's, you know, there's a lot of empathy in exit counseling. We need to get into the survivor's shoes as much as we can and, you know, try to see things from his or her perspective. We need to identify problems that existed before the trafficking involvement, which may persist. Going back to Maslow, you know, what needs do they have on a biological basis? Housing, shelter, you know food, shelter, all that kind of stuff, and how can we help them meet those needs now? We need to consider dealing with psychological issues in the survivor and, if appropriate, in the family. Sometimes the survivor may have been, for example, a runaway. And, okay, that person is now back with their family, but they have extensive trauma. And the family, because the person ran away and because the person was exposed to the horrific things they were exposed to, the family also has a bunch of stuff to deal with. Um, and then we also have to understand why the person ran away in the first place. So there are a lot of dynamics that eventually may need to be dealt with, but that is way down the road. Once the person says, okay, I can see that I want something different for myself. We need to address issues family members have as a result of the trafficking experience appropriate and ensure a comprehensive recovery oriented system of care. That means we have multi multidisciplinary agencies that are available to help meet all of those basic needs that that the person may have. And we recognize that their foray into treatment may be episodic. They may come in, kind of dip their toe, think, yeah no, not yet, and leave and then come back two months later. We need to be open to that and be receptive and welcoming to them when they do come back each time. So eventually they may actually see it as a safe place. Treatment must be collaborative and seek to empower the survivor. Using the stages of change model, we want to build the relationship over multiple meetings. And just to recap, for those of you who haven't you know, review the stages of change model in a while. Pre contemplation, the person doesn't see a problem. There is no problem. You can't tell them there's a problem. And if that's the case, you know, one of the interventions is just to provide information, to provide feedback and let them know that you're there. Contemplation. The person recognizes that there might be a problem, but it is too overwhelming for whatever reason, or they're not ready to make a change. Again, in this stage they see that there's a problem. So we may want to provide feedback about, you know, the, the consequences that, that the situation is having on their life, provide feedback about options that are available, but, you know, now's not the time to push them to, you know, start therapy. We're still in a rapport building phase, preparation or determination, depending on what you want to call it, um. The third stage, the person recognizes there's a problem, they know they need to do something and they start evaluating their options. So this is when they're coming in and going, okay, you know, there might be something to this, but I'm terrified. I have no idea how to make this happen. I don't, I'm afraid I won't survive. Okay. Then we can present more options and we can start helping the person connect with lifelines so they can get those basic needs met. Now they're, they may not be ready to start yet. They're getting their plan in place. And in the action phase, they come in and they go, all right, let's do this. You know, I'm I'm done. I'm ready to be happier, be healthier, be safer. And we want to be sensitive to each one of those phases. One of the things that a lot of clinicians make the mistake of doing is assuming that if somebody comes in and they're kind of thinking that maybe there's a problem, Clinicians often jump into, yes, there's a problem, so let me show you how to fix it. And that's not where the person is. When they're thinking maybe there's a problem, then we want to use some Socratic questioning to help them start evaluating for themselves. How much of a problem is there and what do I need in order to take the next step toward getting ready for treatment? Pay attention, too much eye contact or not giving the person sufficient space. Physical space can feel very threatening if they feel like they're being stared at or if you encroach, even if it's to shake hands or pat them on the back, that can feel very um, overwhelming to them. So it's important to pay a lot of attention to nonverbals because a lot of the communication from their captors has come from nonverbals. Their captors only have to give them a look. Um, in order to create a, create a behavioral response, we want to identify ways by asking them, how can we make the treatment environment and home, whatever home is for that person feel safer to that person? How can we help them feel safer? Develop mutually agreeable goals. So if the person's not ready to leave that relationship, okay. You know, what brought them to your office and you know, how can you help them, in a way that's meaningful to them right now. And that's really hard for a lot of clinicians to, you know, say, okay, you're not ready to work on that issue yet. Let's talk about this thing over here. Avoid techniques that could trigger abuse memories. And there's a lot of these, you know, we want to pay attention to anything that's ritualistic. We don't want to do anything maybe where we're, where we We require them to lay down or to close their eyes. All of those things can be very threatening. One of the tenets of working with survivors of human trafficking is to use a trauma-informed approach. We need to be cognizant of everything that we do and ask ourselves, in what ways might have this, might this have been a, a dangerous situation or indicated The beginning of a dangerous situation to this person. Um, Even in residential, for example, if the sometimes people won't want to sleep with the lights completely out because that is terrifying to them, Um, or they may want to sleep with the door locked. Or you know, we need to look at our agency procedures and how we can work to help the person feel safe within you know agency safety guidelines, and we want to. As the person gets ready to start making a change, emphasize the relationship between their physical symptoms and their traumatic experience. Help them understand how their emotions, how their physical symptoms make sense, if you will, in terms of um, a reaction to their trauma. Psychological issues that we may need to address. Self-sufficiency, you know. Whether it's somebody who is from the United States or not from the United States, we need to make sure that they have the ability to meet their basic biological needs, food, shelter, medical care. Self-esteem has been obliterated in this violent relationship. So they're going to need to reestablish a sense of self-esteem and, and, feeling okay. Um, And part of that is just general self-esteem building. Part of that will be addressing some of the messages that the abuser implanted in them about, you know, their lack of goodness of a person. And part of that, it may be addressing shame issues surrounding the trauma. They need safety. This is another huge issue. A lot of times traffickers are not happy when their um, victims leave and there can be a significant amount of threat of danger. So we need to make sure that the person is safe. There's going to be potentially mental health issues, addiction issues, and post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And post-acute withdrawal syndrome can last for up to a year. And as the body rebalances the neurochemicals and heals itself after being being exposed to, you know, especially addictive substances, there are issues of shame and trauma. Remember that trauma may not be just from the trafficking, it can also be from whatever caused them to be vulnerable to trafficking in the first place. They may need assistance with affect regulation. If you've been to any of my other classes on HPA axis dysregulation, being in a traumatic situation for a long period of time, the HPA axis, the threat response system gets out of whack, clinical term there. And people will often go from what I call flat to furious. A lot of times they, they feel blah. Their body is just kind of conserving energy. They're not happy, they're not sad, they're just kind of fatigued and blah, but when there is a threat, they go from zero to two fifty like that, and they go to furious. they're either terrified or rage um or extraordinarily depressed you know it's there's no middle ground it's it's extreme, so they may need assistance learning how to regulate their affect until their h p a axis is more regulated on its own. Relationship skills are often important. Resiliency skills, helping them learn how to bounce back and deal with distress cuz not every day is going to be a good day. Coping and distress tolerance skills and addressing isolation by helping them connect with peer support groups and just establish social supports in the community. Biopsychosocial needs or biosocial needs, we just did the psycho. Um Basic needs, food, you know, that one I keep saying, but another one that we often don't think of, clothing. A lot of survivors don't have any clothing. We need to help them get changes of clothes uh, so they can, you know, when they shower, they can put on something clean. If they have children, they may need childcare. They may need help with school enrollment and transporting the child to and from school. If they don't speak English, they may need English language courses, but Regardless of whether they speak English or not, they also may need life skills and general education. You know, we want to assess, do they have a high school diploma? Do they have a GED? What do they need in terms of making them, um, getting them the skills so they can get a job that will them enough money to be self-sufficient they may need assistance with job placement job skills training and even vocational counseling and a lot of your um, career one stops um, i don't know what they they call them exactly where you're at but uh, a lot of places have vocational counselors that are available that can help people identify You know, what type of occupation is going to work for you? Do you need to go back to college? You know, some people are going to do really well going back to college. Some people want to get into a more, a different type of vocation that may not require formal academic. We need to assess their family reunion needs if they want any. If they are here from another country, you know, what does that look like? Are they trying to bring their family here? Are they wanting to go back to see their family? You know, what's going on? If they are from the United States, do they want to reunite with their family? Health needs. Not only do they need medical care, but they also need dental care and mental health services. Legally, they need Assistance with defending or pursuing criminal charges, should they want to. Now, we don't want to push this on them. We want to empower them to make decisions on their own. But if they want to pursue criminal charges, then, you know, we can point them in the right direction of legal aid that can help them with that. But a lot of times, they may have also acquired criminal charges while they were being trafficked. So we may need to help them with defending against those charges or getting their records expunged. They may need assistance with visa applications and getting driver's licenses, getting and accessing public benefits, including housing, social security, disability, and Medicaid or Medicare. We also need to help caregivers and the community at large understand the experience of being trafficked. We need to help them develop a level of empathy because a lot of people just can't fathom what this situation is like or how it progresses to that point. We want to help the community at large, including teachers and, and you know everybody, understand vulnerabilities that make survivors susceptible to trafficking in the first place. Because until we understand what the vulnerabilities are, we can't prevent them. And this will go a long way to creating prevention programs and creating resources in the community to minimize some of these vulnerabilities. We need caregivers in the community to understand recruiting techniques so they're aware of of, you know, what it looks like and, you know, things that should make their spidey senses kind of go off. We need to help them understand the impact of trafficking on survivors, even the ones that seem like they are unwilling to leave that situation. And we need to help caregivers, as well as the community, understand what a path to recovery can look like and how, you know, sometimes it's two steps forward and one and a half steps back, you know, it's not probably not going to be a straightforward, linear process, but we want them to understand, you know, like the stuff we talked about earlier, for example, about resistance. You know, the person's behavior is telling you something, maybe something they can't identify or speak with their own words. But if they are not wanting to do something, I'm trying to avoid using the R word. If they're not wanting to do something that we want them to do, we want to understand why. Is it too scary? Is it too painful? Is it, or, or do they not have the skills or tools to make that happen? And how can we help them empower them should they want to take that next step? Some resources for you. These are some great resources that are free and they're available, you know, online. There's a protocol toolkit for developing a response to victims of human trafficking in healthcare settings. This is basically a tool for identifying how to screen and identify people who might be being trafficked, as well as the resources they might need. Improving human trafficking victim identification. This is a screening tool. After rescue, evaluation of strategies to stabilize and integrate adult survivors of human trafficking to the United States. This does not, this particular toolkit does not specifically go into counseling issues. Like I said, that's way down the road. It talks about the stabilization process and what things people need in those immediate weeks. Um, after they decide to leave that situation to help them get stabilized, the anti-human trafficking manual for criminal justice practitioners, that's a good one. Getting a T visa talked a lot about that at the beginning. And if you just want a real quick overview of human trafficking, human trafficking and child welfare, a guide for caseworkers is a very nice concise summary of a bunch of what we talked about today. Services, including um, accommodations, you know, somewhere to sleep that's safe, medical support, counseling, translation services, religious observances, clothing, food, and possibly planning for a return to the country of origin may be required from the moment you come into contact with a suspected victim for an interview. This isn't something that we can put off to the end of an interview or a series of interviews. We need to meet them where they are, and just like the trafficker did, unfortunately, we need to identify their needs and provide them options to get those needs met besides... From the trafficker. It is essential to join the survivor in their reality as a starting place to work toward change. Trafficking, remember, is not just sex work and involves not only people from other countries coming to the US, but also US citizens. And trafficking, like I said earlier, is a little deceptive because you don't actually have to transport anybody anywhere. Remember that trafficking happens in every state of the Union and most countries. All right. well that was a really depressing presentation but it's important to recognize that this problem exists and we as frontline practitioners are in the prime place to identify people who are being trafficked and provide them you know options but we're also in a prime situation to identify vulnerabilities to that make people more vulnerable to trafficking and work in our communities to create prevention programs to reduce those vulnerabilities so we reduce trafficking. All righty. Thank you for being with me today. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.